You're listening to the Salty Sex Cast with Mariah and friends. Minimize the fear. Expand your awareness. Hello, it's Mariah here with the Salty Sex Cast, another wonderful episode with another wonderful guest. I have Indigo Stray Conger here coming in from Colorado, so on Zoom, and Indigo is a sex and relationship therapist based in Colorado. Um, She has trained in the heart of San Francisco, which um, she lovingly wrote that it's the land of inclusiveness and sexual exploration. I think that's well said. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I put out a post and you, you replied and I loved when you said, Hey, this is my niche. This is what I'm really great at because it's one that I think I get the most questions on. So it's non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy. There's lots of different names. I'm sure we'll kind of go through those throughout the episode. Um, but I'd love for you to, um, tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Yeah. And it's wonderful that there's so much terminology out there now because there wasn't when I was young and exploring relationships the first time, um, I came of age in the nineties and there weren't a lot of resources for consensual non-monogamy. There was the first edition of ethical slut. If you're familiar with that, which is really different than the version that's out there now. And that was really it. And in the nineties, we didn't have chat rooms and podcasts and all these great resources that we have now for people who are curious and wanting to explore a different paradigm of relationships or sexuality. So, um, like I said, coming of age in the nineties as a bisexual woman, I had no labels. I couldn't say like, I am ethically non-monogamous or a relationship anarchist, or I'm this, or I'm that. It was just trying to do the best I could and be honest and kind and be true to who I was as a sex positive person. So certainly not all bisexual people are non-monogamous, but for me, I tended from an early age to have a boyfriend and a girlfriend at the same time. I would not have called them metamors. I don't think the phrase even existed then. If it did, I wasn't aware of it, but I really tried to get my partners to have positive relationships with each other. Um, They did not have a sexual or romantic relationship with each other, but would get along and be able to speak with each other. So Right from my earliest self, I already had a different paradigm than a lot of people who are coming into this now, um, who might be in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They might have come from a really religious background and they read something or they see something or they have friends that are exploring ethical non-monogamy and it speaks to them and they want to explore it. They want to dive in, but they have decades behind them of not having been in that paradigm, right? So that's what I do is I help people. Um, Sometimes I'm helping people who are brand new. Sometimes I'm helping people who are decades into consensual non-monogamy themselves, uh, but they have some new dynamics coming up and they want to work with someone who is savvy about open relationships that they're not going to have to explain their paradigm to from scratch. (laughs) And I only giggle because my, my personal experience with a therapist has been let's latch on to this thought of you have multiple partners and it's like, that's really mm-hmm. not why I'm here <laughs> I yeah. want communication or whatever, but, but why do you think you need this? And, and, and it's frustrating and it is a, a barrier for 
professional help, professional assistance. And I hear that all the time. (laughs) Love that we actually have people who um, are trained in it, know what it is and know that there is a healthy, positive way to practice this. It's not icky. It's not um, cheating. It's not um, all these things that maybe like heavy religious or even mainstream society, you know, dubs it as, um, being in Utah, obviously Mm -hmm. we get this weird paradigm of Mormons who are like, Oh, you, you know, cheating and all these things. And, you know, if you have any other partners, but their history was a polygamy, but that was only for breeding essentially. And if it's anything more than it's, why does that, if you can't, it's not about sex positivity, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Oh yes. It's let's more control things like that. So it's really, really interesting to hear other people's reactions, but there it's not a new concept, but they're very like, keep it away. Mm -hmm. It's contagious. (laughs) <laughs> if you like more than one person, then you're after everyone kind of thing, which is really, really funny. That one's always the most entertaining. <laughs> so Yeah. And it is starting to become more mainstream, which again is, is positive, right? That people have so many more resources to go for. And there are therapists out there that are savvy. Part of what I do is I offer trainings for competency and consensual non-monogamy for therapists, because it isn't enough for therapists to just say, I'm cool with that. Um, so hopefully when you're going to see a therapist, Mariah, these days, they're at least a little knowledgeable and they're not hyper-focused on this is the problem. But in some ways it can be even more problematic when a therapist says, I'm not judgmental, but they don't actually know any of the things to look for that are issues within a consensually non-monogamous paradigm. So if you don't know any of the red flags for what might be coming up and how to help clients work through those things, then you can actually do more harm than good as a therapist. It's a tricky rope to walk. (laughs) Um, and, but it sounds like you do a really good job of watching your own biases, you know, helping others kind of overcome that in that professional world to serve all those clients. Um, what are some of those red flags that you're looking for and other things that may be overlooked in, uh, um, a monogamous relationship? So one of the main things in the paradigm shift to consensual non-monogamy is that uh, hierarchical models can be problematic, which doesn't mean that you can't make that work, but it's important to be looking at how you're making that work. And if you're trying to make it work from the monogamous paradigm that you came from, that can be an issue. So a, a really good example of this is Uh, using veto power in consensual non-monogamy. So veto power in its purest form means that like whatever we're doing, whether we're exploring sex or romance or depthful relationships, whatever it is, that we can always pull the ripcord at any time, right? You can date other people or you can have sex with other people. But if I start to freak out, essentially, I can say, nope, we're done. We're stopping this. And uh, even to therapists, this can sound like a good idea. Like, yes, you're building a safety net. You're discussing this ahead of time. That's going to protect your relationship. But what it's really doing is it's setting that dyad up, that couple up for being 
primary and not treating other partners as human, even if you're not going to treat them as equal partners, it's not treating them as human. So then when you have a real person in the mix, veto power can actually do the opposite of creating safety because you're actually doing damage in the relationship. You're not exploring what the actual emotions are. You're not working through those things in a, a nuanced way. You're just saying, I'm uncomfortable. So I want you to end your relationship. And if that person does in their relationship, there can be a lot of resentment. There can be fallout. There can be break in trust that takes oh. a really long time to repair. So that's one of those areas where if you have a therapist who says, all right, I'm hearing you, you want veto power. That sounds like a good way to set things up. I'm supporting you in that, that the therapist can actually be doing more harm than good in helping clients to set up the container for how they're exploring this. Yeah. It gives someone undue power. Like here, you have more power over me. You can control this dynamic. Um, and the saddest thing is I I've seen this, I've heard this. Um, and it is easily masked as boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so then it really can even come in under the radar and you're not even seeing that. And so being well-trained, knowing things, I think that's so important because as you're saying it, I'm like, yes, I, I've, I've heard this, I've seen this. Um, that's really interesting. So when you, I'm glad you bring that up about boundaries, if it's okay to talk about those a little bit. Um, so that's great. Cause that's such a buzzword that people love to talk about, whether it's consensual non-monogamy or otherwise. And one of the pieces that I like to educate both therapists and clients on is the difference between boundaries and rules. And oftentimes when we're talking about boundaries, we're actually really talking about a rule, but we're saying that it's a boundary. So a rule is, um, you know, we come home from dates at 11 PM or we don't have overnights or we don't fluid bond with other partners, meaning having unbarriered sex. That's a rule. You can have a rule. That's okay. But if you just have the rule, then there is no way to work through that if the rule gets broken. And that's where the boundaries come in. So let's say our rule is that we're not going to be fluid bonded with other partners. And then the condom breaks or you have a few drinks and you do have sex without barriers. And then you come back to your other partner and you say that this has happened. What then, if that was the rule, there's, there's no path forward. It just feels like broken trust, right? Whereas if I've already thought about my boundaries, my boundaries are what I control about myself, my own behavior, my own body, then I can say, all right, I'm disappointed by this. We need to do some repair around this, but my boundary is we're not going to have unbarriered sex until we both get tested. Um, or maybe it's also includes, we're going to all have a conversation together about how to move forward from this broken trust place. These are things that you can control for yourself instead of just it being the rule. And usually when clients come in and they're starting to explore consensual non-monogamy, they can sometimes have a list as long as my arm of rules that they think are going to keep them safe. They're like, we're so prepared. We have gone through this whole contract of what it means down to like these minute things about if this, then that. And Mm. really they're just setting themselves up for failure because every single rule that's there, if there's no way to work through that, then there's another opportunity to hurt each other. Manipulate control even with a lot of that. Yeah. The, the, just even the list here, I'm coming in with this, you know, and that kind of takes out the, the ethical piece of it too. Is this, did you give any room to be human to explore, mm. to know when there is another person involved, they have to go by this rule book. How, mm-hmm. how was that fair or ethical for them to, to meet all of those? So 
um, even though two people agreed to those, <laughs> did the right. other person or other people agree to them? So that's really interesting to start thinking about. And um, since I haven't seen a therapist uh, about this specifically, so just kind of hearing some of the vocabulary and like putting them together with the concepts, I'm like, yes, I know exactly <laughs> what that is and, and all the things. So um, we start talking about boundaries and um, the red flags. Um, so what do you suggest instead of veto power? What are some other healthier ways to kind of feel like you can still be, um, you can still protect, you know, yes, there's the boundaries. Maybe that's just, maybe I just answered my own question. <laughs> so instead of veto power, we have boundaries, but is right. there a and way communication? So communication is so important. I mean, it's many memes in the open relationship world, right. That are jokes about how much you have to schedule and how much you have to be able to communicate because there are so many things to process. Uh, if I have clients who say like, we don't really like to talk about, talk through things. We want less information. We don't like to talk about emotions. That to me is something where I really want to slow people down in their process then, because that typically doesn't actually work very well. You've got to be able to be in touch with yourself to be able to articulate your needs, your requests, your boundaries, um, your emotions, especially when they become overwhelmed and to be able to take those and discuss those with your partners. Um, you don't all have to, you don't have to have kitchen table poly necessarily, which is where there's an expectation that all partners can come to the table and talk with each other all the time about every issue. But it is important that you're able to have some level of uh, conversation. So another great example of a problematic rule is kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. And usually the the pain that you're kind of avoiding by not getting information, just saying like, go on dates, have sex, but I just don't want to hear about it. That's going to come up later because there is going to be something that you find out at some point. And instead of processing that slowly and communicating with your partner or partners about it, it's going to be all at once. And it's going to feel like a betrayal, even if that's what you agreed to was a don't ask, don't tell policy. Oh, that flood would hurt. All of it coming in at once. I've seen it hurt. I've seen it hurt. (laughs) Or my imagination is doing far more damage than what's really happening. Because if I have an imagination, I'm going to look at the tiniest little clues. Mm -hmm. Why did you act that way in bed? What did you learn from somebody else? Like that would just... That would be hard. I couldn't projections are huge. Yeah. I I had clients once who had a don't ask, don't tell policy before they ever came in. And when they came in, they had been doing some kind of open relationship for a couple of years. And, um, it came out in therapy that the husband thought that his wife had been having sex with all these guys. And she actually hadn't had sex with anyone in all that time, but he had been trying to work through these difficult emotions without Mm -hmm. ever having a conversation about what's really happening. And at Mm -hmm. that point, two years, of those projections was pretty concretized. I mean, it was a reality for him. So it took a long time to be able to adjust that that wasn't the reality. And what are we actually talking about? What has actually been happening for two years? (laughs) Yes. Oh yeah. My imagination would go far, far too off or yeah. (laughs) I'm just already going off on my own. Um, but you know, with the communication, um, when, I have to say my experience having it being in a thruple for, it was a little under a year. Um, I hadn't ever been able to 
talk about some of these harder things until it was there. And then it was like, I almost had not a buffer and not like a, an extra person to come at my partner with this, but it was kind of like, you can see it too. I'm not making this up or you can see a spot that I was totally blinded to or word it differently. And it was really, really cool to see that dynamic between all three of us. And I had never been in a healthier mindset and communication with my, my spouse, my long-term partner than, than that time. And I just thought it was really cool. Um, it was something we didn't look for at all. It just kind of happened. And it was like, none of us hate this. Okay. <laughs> so it was really cool. I, I absolutely um, love that experience and love the, what it gave me for confidence speaking to my spouse about things and some of those harder things. And so when you were having conversations during that time, what did you learn about how to create a container for that with your spouse or with both of your partners? Did you have regular conversations or did you have a way that you were speaking to each other that helped? Um, I think it was more of, if it's come up more than a couple times in your, you know, in your own brain, <laughs> uh-huh. maybe something could, should, can be said. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to say, you know, you don't have to say I'm saying this because I'm expecting action or something change, but I just want to share. And I thought that was really cool just to have, like, just to be able to share, um, Hey, that kind of made me slightly jealous. I haven't put my finger on it. Why? Um, I don't know if I didn't like it, but I did understand that that feeling came up. Mm -hmm. Usually if we're sharing something out loud with another person, we're expecting some type of change or validation or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, something like that, but it was more of just. I just like to say this out loud. And then it kind of would catch me. And, um, maybe you guys can help me as I'm saying mm-hmm. this out loud. Why do you think kind of things? It was just, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience for a few months, but, um, it sounds like you really started developing the skills of being able to notice your emotions, express your emotions, and for no one to automatically expect that you're supposed to do something about your partner's emotions. And that's something that oftentimes monogamous people don't have. Um, and not that intensity doesn't come up in, in monogamous relationships, but oftentimes when it does, it, it, feels like it's definitely your partner (laughs) and there is two different narratives that are opposing and one of those narratives is going to win out. That's not so great. And I work with my monogamous clients as well around that, but it can go by for years, relatively functional. But when you have other partners in the mix, or even if you don't have other partners, but there's other sexual experiences happening that can bring up strong emotions. uh, It's really important to notice I'm having these emotions. They might be related to my partner, um, but it's not up to them to fix these emotions for me and for that, your partner to be able to receive those emotions without getting really defensive or without feeling like they're being told that their narrative is wrong and they have to fix it. So those skills that you're talking about are exactly the ones that I really try to help my clients work on. I mean, yeah, it's so cool just seeing that shift too and, and watching other people, um, go through that themselves and, Kind of just uh, hearing it from the outside in too, the shift mm-hmm. in what other people noticed in our dynamic. And it was really cool to kind of hear that and, and things, but. Um, Did so you we, have people when there were problems in your dynamic though, that um, 
would immediately think like, oh, well, that's because you're a thruple. <laughs> where they might not make the same judgment if you were having a similar disagreement in a monogamous relationship or a similar emotional flood. Definitely. It was pretty funny because <laughs> there were certain times that like, if we were having an argument, it wasn't as public, not that it ever was before, but it was kind of like, I'm sure everyone's just going to say, well, of course, like it's going to end badly. Like this isn't natural. This isn't like what everyone does. And plenty of friends had told us that. And we were like, that's okay. And most relationships don't end well. So, um, it's going to end how it ends and it didn't end on a high note, but we're back to a good friends place. And so like, that's what really mattered for me and such a great person in my life. So I don't think I could ever, um, completely end that friendship either. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's cool. Um, but we, So non-monogamous, um, is really, there's so many different vocabulary words. I'd love to kind of explore this because we have been throwing out a few of them. They've Mm -hmm. been on our show before. We've probably broken them down before, but for anyone tuning in who's new, I'd love to kind of, um, talk about some of these definitions. Um, one is ethical non-monogamy and consensual non-monogamy. I use those interchangeably. I don't know if that is correct though. Do you have a difference? Do you know if there's a difference between either one? Sure. So consensual non-monogamy was an earlier term. And the reason why it came about was to highlight the difference between these kinds of non-monogamy and exactly what you mentioned earlier in terms of the Mormon church and polygamy, right? Because even though certainly Mormon women would say that it's consensual, it's also expected that this is the paradigm you live within. In a similar way to many of us in America, the paradigm we live within is monogamy. And so that's what's expected. So is it hundred percent for consensual for some people? Maybe they've thought through it and for other people is just what's done. Right. Um, so that was where the term consensual non-monogamy came from. And then ethical non-monogamy has started to be used interchangeably. And it, I mean, it definitely sounds better because eth- I mean, a lot of people assume like, of course it's consensual, right. Which is great that we've gotten to a point where we think like, of course it's consensual. Let's talk about ethics, but ethical non-monogamy really grew out of the movement um, away from hierarchical polyamory. So started mm-hmm. ethical being a term that's referring to everyone being able to have an equal seat at the table, even if there is a relationship that's a nesting relationship or an anchor relationship, meaning that it's a person you might share a home with, share kids with, share most of your time with, um, that even if that is primary in some senses, that you're not treating other partners as if they're just inhuman, essentially, or like they don't have their own rights. So um, ethical non-monogamy is referring to not saying to those secondary partners, well, my wife and I have agreed that Tuesday nights we can have other relationships. So if you want to date me, you can see me on Tuesday nights and here's all the other rules for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're never going to get to go on a trip with me. You're never going to get to spend the night. So don't even think that I'm not allowed to say, I love you. So it's never going to go there. You know, all the typical rules that can come up before someone is even entering the conversation as a human. So when I hear ethical non-monogamy, that's what I associate it with is that moving over the last decade or decade and a half away from hierarchical being the only real form of polyamory that was out there for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And I'm seeing more and more examples of that too. So it's, it's, it's cool for me to watch it. Um, somewhat being involved, but also having a lot of friends involved and, and just seeing how it it's morphing into, um, 
some of the healthiest people I know. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. It's really well, like they're just healthy in communication and other things. And, um, I have so- a lot of clients who try ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. Um, and they're not sure if it's going to be for them. And sometimes they end up deciding, you know, it's not for us, but usually they come out so much stronger in terms of communication, in terms of awareness of their own emotions, being able to deal with nervous system overwhelm and insecurities Mm -hmm. when they come up. So it doesn't matter if you get to the end of that process and say like, this adventure isn't really for us. We want to be monogamous. Um, if you learn a lot along the way and you definitely will learn a lot along the way. (laughs) Oh yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, where my spouse and I are at right now, we're not open to anything extra or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, and at this moment doesn't mean it won't change. And so that's kind of where, um, I I don't know if there's a word for that. And on again, off again. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I I heard someone recently when I was on a different podcast refer to it, I think, as um, uh, polysaturated at one. So we haven't talked about the word polysaturated or the phrase polysaturated, but that means when you get to a level that you can't really handle any more partners because there's not enough time, there's not enough bandwidth. And so some people are polysaturated at seven, but, um, oftentimes like when you have young kids, uh, you can be polysaturated at one. And I identify with that myself. Most of my relationships throughout my life have been open relationships of some kind or another, but, um, I, I have my own business. I'm very busy. I have a young child at home, my husband and I are polysaturated at one for sure. (laughs) And someday that may change and it may not. But the most important thing for us is that we're not just saying we're monogamous by default, right? We've come to where we're at through experiences in our own life and together to get to a place where we know this is where we want to be at right now. Ah, And you're constantly checking in to see, Hey, has anything shifted for you? Instead of just kind of going with the flow or expecting, um, this is only temporary kind of thing. I'm just waiting until that wedge is there Mm -hmm. so I can wedge in and kind of, so it's, it really is a, a way to just stay open with that communication and, and check in with each other too. (laughs) And to not take each other for granted. So a lot of the exploration and non-monogamy has helped my clients to get to a place where they're not just assuming all my free time I'm hanging out with my partner, right? Because there has to be more communication than that. And really in the monogamous paradigm, there is this underlying implicit message that you should be pretty enmeshed with your partner and your partner's time kind of belongs to you. And you have a right to be somewhat resentful if they want to spend time elsewhere, whether that's with another partner or with friends or something they're passionate about doing. Um, And so when you come from ethical non-monogamy as part of your paradigm, you don't assume that regardless of if you're in a relationship with just one person, you feel like I'm honored that you want to spend Sunday with me. I'm honored that you want to go on this adventure with me. And I'm not assuming that we're just going to be two people attached at the hip forever and ever. (laughs) Uh, If only my kids would get that one. (laughs) Yes. Uh I just need space for just a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, what are other themes or other main questions that you constantly see that's just, um, or even misconceptions, there's all sorts of misconceptions or coming in with, this is my expectation and having to kind of break that down. But what are the themes you see? 
I just threw a ton of questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The biggest theme I would say is jealousy and insecurity. And at some point that comes up for most people. And for some people that's not right off. I have clients who come in that have never needed therapy and they've been in an open relationship for decades and it's coming up now for some reason. And I have other people who read books on consensual non-monogamy and theoretically they agree with it and they're sure that they're not going to have any jealousy or insecurity. And then when they actually try it, they get hit like with a freight train with these emotions that don't feel logical. It doesn't go along with how they want to be feeling, but they're feeling it anyway. (laughs) So a lot of the work that I'm doing is helping people who may not be really used to feeling strong emotions in their body on a nervous system level to be able to work with those things both on their own and with their partner to get to a place of feeling secure, even as they're exploring in a paradigm that there's not really any modeling for in our culture. So a lot of times uh, a couple that's opening their relationship in some way can feel jealousy and insecurity come up and they panic. They feel like, well, there must be something wrong, especially since there's no movies out there that show me the happy ending romance for this kind of model. So there must be something wrong that I'm feeling something this intensely. And I help clients be able to walk through with each other. Nope, there's nothing wrong. It's just that your nervous system is telling you a story and you're having a response. And this is a great opportunity for us to calm the body down and to actually get closer and more vulnerable with your partner and partners. Yeah. Just being aware of those bio responses, know what, how, and they how they can change even as that relationship changes too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said something about society and modeling. Uh, that was something that was hard. Um, I'm definitely still in the closet. I'm really careful how much I advertise the podcast because if my my family, mostly my in-laws, um, hear about kind of that experience and continued experiences, um, it wouldn't be great. So, Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting, um, because my oldest is 12, picks up on things, knows things, not oblivious at all. And asked us about it one day. And I, you know, just having to say relationships come in all different shapes and sizes. They look very different. And then what the biggest thing is that everyone is involved, you know, that consensual piece and really just try to drive that home. But I was like, I don't know if this is going to be conversation in his, you know, twenties or old later and be like, my parents scarred me. They did this Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, I just kind of wish we would see a little bit more of it, throw Mm -hmm. a crazy movie out there or have, you know, um, commercial with, three people walking down the street, holding hands, you know, just a blip, just something there. So it doesn't sound like I'm part of this crazy thing. (laughs) And right now the only stuff that is out there is crazy things, right? It's like, Oh, look at these wild people who think they're not going to have a crazy time doing this or like watch the drama, watch the fallout. And so there's not modeling of it being happily ever after or, or healthy. Yeah. And of course we're talking about sex positivity as a theme through this. And this, a big piece for people is often 
uh, feeling sex positive with your partner partners and your friends or when you're at Burning Man. But when it comes to the in-laws, it suddenly feels like you're back in this paradigm of shame and wanting to hide that part of yourself. And so that's often the biggest hurdle is how do you become more open and there's certainly no requirement that you need to be out and proud to everyone, particularly in the difficult scenarios that people find themselves in. And that's such a great growing edge of how sex positive am I really, if I can't say who I am to everyone in my life that I care about. If, um, you know, I have supposedly a close relationship with my sister, but my sister knows nothing about the fact that I've had a girlfriend for five years. Uh, it really compartmentalizes ourselves in a way that, uh, means that shame's kind of always there right around the corner, even if we're not feeling it in the moment with our partner or partners. Yeah. It's really hard to just turn around and, um, I'm even part of an employee resource group, um, for work that's a pride group. And there was a whole chat about like, introduce yourself. And I won't even introduce me myself as bisexual on there because most people know I'm married. So then it would be this huge conversation about like, why is this? Or at least I'm worried. I'm fearful Mm -hmm. of that huge conversation. Um, but again, now that I'm saying that out loud, I could be taking away that opportunity for someone else to see that modeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The world Uh, does not make it easy to be out and bisexual and proud for sure. And even in the queer community for a long, long time, being bisexual, there were all kinds of assumptions, uh, talking about assumptions is, uh, assumptions that bisexual people were slutty, that bisexual people are never satisfied, that bisexual people just don't actually know yet they're lying to themselves and they're actually gay or they're lying to themselves and they're actually straight. Lots of narratives around that. And when you end up in a heteronormative relationship, particularly if it is for the moment monogamous, there's a lot of invisibility there. And, the world doesn't make it easy to want to be out about that, but it can really bury our identity, right? If we're passing in the world as being heteronormative women when we're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's one of those things that I think we're shifting. It's a slow shift. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taking off quite quicker than it ever has in history. I think so, but thanks. Thank you. Social media and podcasts (laughs) and all the things that are helping us get out there. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing being sex positive in one area of your life and then having to, or feel like you have to hide it. Um, and it is just so interesting, even seeing the word sex out in public, how many people like, Mm-hmm. I've hesitated to get shirts made for the podcast because it will say sex in it or anything. It's just really funny to hear and see reactions and then have some of the healthiest people I know really just being sex positive. Um, but they have to almost do it behind closed doors or don't get to show how healthy they are because everyone shuts down immediately when Mm -hmm. they kind of see these hints and other things like, Oh, you do what? (laughs) There was a picture on social media with you holding two people's hands. What was going on? Um, that kind of thing. So, 
I'm so glad there is a bi pride flag now. And I'm actually not really sure when it came about because I know it wasn't there when I was young and I love it now. I have a bi pride flag in my car. I always do bi pride months on Facebook, you know, on my profile and stuff and trying to be out there because otherwise there's not these moments in conversation at Thanksgiving necessarily where it's like, by the way, everyone, I just want to let you know I'm bisexual. Um, it's, it's hard to know how to insert that, but when there's, some symbol that you have, a pin that you wear, something like that, then people ask you about it and it gives you an opportunity to practice that being comfortable with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so great you brought that up. Um, My producer for the podcast, he flies a bi-pride flag out in his front yard and his, I think she's nine, nine nine-year-old daughter was asking him about it and told her, I was like, this is just so great, like that opportunity and you know, we went to back to school night and one of the teachers had a pride flag in her classroom. And my, my eight-year-old daughter was like, mom, look, you know, I was like, yeah. So it's just, it's, it's cool to just kind of have that more visibility too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we kind of moved away from vocabulary, but another one, uh, you that is thrown around, but I'd love for us to revisit the, um, definition is relationship anarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So how do you typically describe that to somebody? So relationship anarchy means that you're letting go of some of the labels, right? If not all of the labels that are there. And that can be very freeing to just be with people in your life as people and to not necessarily be worried where you're at on the relationship escalator with them. Meaning like, Oh, are we moving to the next step of calling each other boyfriend and girlfriend? Are we moving to the next step of wearing rings? Um, and instead this is a person that I love and care about. Maybe sometimes we have sex. Maybe we go for long periods of time where we don't, maybe we feel like there's romance between us, or maybe most of the time it feels like a stronger friendship. And instead of stressing about, who you are to someone else, just letting that be a little bit more fluid. Um, With that said, I do see relationship anarchy used a lot as a way to armor or defend against doing the work. So I will have clients that come in and um, there's emotional issues that are coming up and there's tough conversations that are coming up. And one partner will say, you know what? I'm a relationship anarchist. So um, I'm just not going to talk to you about that or work through your hard feelings. Your feelings are yours and I'm just going to take care of myself. And so that's where it can become problematic, right? Is that instead of it being about treating all people as people and letting situations be rooted in the present moment of what's real, that it becomes almost a weapon. I don't have to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can really see how that can be used. It's not a healthy term. You know, you hear anarchy and sounds like chaos <laughs> is what some people could associate that word with too. And so it's kind of nice just to have, this is maybe a little bit better definition to, um, not better. I, don't, I hate to say better or worse things. Um, but just, a, another way to relate to that definition. Mm-hmm. Um, any other themes that you see either sex positivity or, um, non-monogamous relationships, uh, clients you see? Well, you brought up earlier the, how out are you, right? So that can be an issue that comes up quite a bit when partners have, they come from different families and they come from different backgrounds is one person has been telling their mom since they were 10, that they were bisexual and they have always been polyamorous and their partner, they feel like 
isn't really stepping into the space with them because they are com- completely not able to share with their family without their family rejecting them, for example. Um, Maybe their friends don't even know because they might come from a really strongly religious background and they're worried about losing all of their friends. Um, And so that process can be tough of figuring out where is this something that impacts us? You know, if we're both going to Thanksgiving, where am I not being myself if we're not open about anything about our life? And also where can I be patient with my partner because they're dealing with a different social group, a different family of origin than, than I am. Oh, you hit the nail on the head for me right now. <laughs> I think between me and my partner a little bit, and there's a point that I'm like, I don't really care Um, if that's their, uh, definition of me and if that's how people want to react to this. Um, but I have to also know that this, I'm not doing this alone. I still have that partner that it does affect deeply too, especially when it's his family. So it's hard. It is probably the hardest thing of that line that I have to cross and, um, had a recent thing that I, I told somebody, um, about the podcast and about this. And uh, obviously, cause I share very <laughs> personal things and I'm not afraid to on the podcast. And you know, it was kind of like, why did you tell that person? Now they're going to know about all this stuff. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. if they think differently about me, I that's on them. Honestly, they know who I am um, enough to know that I'm a good person. I'm not meaning to harm others that um, I'm not harming my family living this way making these choices. I think that's another one that was always worried about, you know, will our parents worry about their grandchildren Mm -hmm. living in a home of this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. That's always (laughs) on the table. and, And speaking of kids too, and how to tell them and when to tell them that can be really tricky in terms of there aren't the legal rights for polyamorous families that there are, for example, for in most ways for gay and lesbian families. And so there's a real fear that if kids say something at school and a teacher decides this is the worst thing ever, that they can report you to child protective services. Child protective services isn't going to be able to take away your kiddos based just on that, but you don't really want that scrutiny and attention on your private life. And then in addition to that, kids, you know, Kids can understand sexual content and relationship content from an early age, particularly if they're in a family that has a container where they're open about that kind of thing. But then it can be a big shock if they go to school and they're in first grade, second grade, third grade, and they talk about their two moms or um, their dad's girlfriend that's at the house and other kids can have all kinds of reactions if they've never heard of such a thing. And so You want to protect your own kids from having to defend your lifestyle or from feeling shunned in some way. Um, And so that it's really difficult to find when's the right time, what's the best way to do this when our culture just doesn't support it in the way that we would hope. You know, you're, you had a good experience of seeing a pride flag in a teacher's classroom. So you can know, okay, there's at least a little bit more space to trust that there's a safe container there for my kiddo along these lines. But for the most part, we can't always trust that even in queer friendly areas, not necessarily, or not necessarily non-monogamy friendly contexts. Oh, yes. I think that was a, something, you know, telling my, my oldest about it and saying, you know, all relationships look differently. This is the things to look for. This is when, you know, it's this type of relationship kind of thing. Um, if it's healthy or if it's not healthy, if it's consensual, not consensual kind of thing. 
Um, but I said, but if you wanted to talk to any other adult about this, you can, mm-hmm. a lot of them will, most of the adults in your life may not understand. And so, and I kind of listed off a few people that I know were trusted adults and said, they might not understand. And there might be some consequences for them not understanding, but that's not your burden at all. Like if you feel like you need to talk to grandma Mm -hmm. or, or auntie or anybody that's there, it's always there. So that was something that was hard to say. Cause I was like, okay, but I'm not going to take that away from my child to protect myself. I'm protecting him Mm -hmm. more than anything. And that's Um, such a great message to keep shame and secrecy from seeping into your kid's sexuality, because it can feel like I'm protecting my kid by being like, don't mention this to grandma, but then they're getting a message really early on. This isn't an okay thing to talk about. This is secret. This is dark. Someone's going to think this is wrong. Even if my parents don't think it's wrong. Um, and that's, it's going to have an imprint on them, regardless of if they end up having non-monogamous relationships, it has an imprint on their sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, it was just a hard conversation. Didn't, wasn't prepared for it. Didn't really think it through. And I was just kind of like, okay, but you know, and just kind of said there are consequences and there might be some things said that, you know, um, I can't tell you what it is, but that person's still there. And I don't want to ever take that away from you to have a trusted, a conversation with a trusted adult, but And that's the part too, is that we rarely get to just have this conversation in a well thought out way. And we're so prepared for it. You know, my clients will often come in and be like, we didn't think we were going to have a conversation for another couple of years about this or that, but our kiddos asked about this thing and we did the best we could in the moment. What should we do now? How should we try to clear up the message and make it as, as positive and clear as possible? Right. And, and it's better, I think when it comes up by them, obviously. So it always takes you off guard. Um, instead of me sitting down and being like, okay, there's something we need to tell you because mm-hmm. that's scary. And I always think, I always remember vividly every childhood moment that my parents did that. Like mm-hmm. we have something that's going on, you know, dad lost his job or whatever it was. Right. It was always just very traumatizing. And I was like, mm-hmm. don't want to do that, especially when it's something confusing and, um, not modeled, not mainstream, um, very different. So, and there is an um, inherent negativity when you have to have the sit down conversation. And there's fortunately some movement around this in terms of the coming out conversation that people are feeling like, you know what, it's not my responsibility to sit down and handhold my parents and grandma through this. I'm going to be out and they can ask me questions because I'm going to have symbols and I'm going to talk about my partner. Um, and we may end up having a difficult conversation or a challenging conversation along the way, but even framing it as I need to say this difficult thing and sit down frames it as bad as negative and also puts the burden on you, whatever you're coming out about as queer, as non-monogamous, it puts the burden on you to do the work for other people. And you might be willing to help other people, but ultimately it's, it's their process to figure it out for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And educate themselves. Um, you know, how many times I have several friends who are, you know, trans or, um, have come out as a non-binary 
And then that's the person you go ask for all the questions mm-hmm. for that. And then right. it's like, no, <laughs> that's not their responsibility. And it might've um, been different in 1980 before everyone had the internet on their phones, right? Of like, okay, people podcasts. really don't know what it means. Podcasts. Yes, exactly. You know, people didn't necessarily have all the information to know what is life like for a trans person? What does it actually mean to be trans? And now it's like, you can, you can figure this out. <laughs> you can immediately do some searches and get reputable information. And if you have some questions for me, you can ask them, but I'm not going to educate you on what consensual non-monogamy is, for example, like there's plenty of stuff out there. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, I would say my parents' generation, if it's not monogamous, you're swingers or you're mm-hmm. cheaters. There's one or the other it's black or white. There really is no, um, different definitions and all these things, all these things that we've kind of thrown out. Um, and even if I claim, you know, non-monogamy, it looks very different from maybe your non-monogamy. Right. And so even having that language, and that's the tough thing with one no thing. modeling too, is if you have like one set of friends, that's non-monogamous and you're like, they, their relationship looks pretty cool. I want to try that. You have one example to go off of. And that's as opposed to the thousands of examples that monogamous people have to say, this monogamy isn't exactly me, but this kind of relationship is. And so when people are trying to fit into the one model they got from a TV show or a friend, it's really limited. It's not as nuanced as it could be if there were a lot more examples out there and more peers that were exploring in their own way. And to be, to have that pressure of being one of those modeled relationships, I can't mess up Mm -hmm. or I don't want to talk to my best friend about, um, my, you know, this difficult situation between my girlfriend and my husband, you know, things like that. It's, it's, you don't almost want to mess up because it is probably someone's very small view. Um, it's a lot of pressure to try to make it work and make it look great. It Um, I will say most of the non-monogamous relationships and, um, and dynamics and groups of people I know are, there's a different, um, level of communication. So it does seem healthier, but I think that's just because they're usually able to, um, be more self-aware, have more language, have that opportunity, um, not because behind closed doors, they don't get mad uh, about the toilet seat being up. Right. Right. <laughs> like they have the same problems, but I just think it's, um, slightly different. There is that pressure though. There yeah. is that pressure when you're one of the only folks modeling it out there yeah. where you're just like, ah, um, cause no so one gets divorced okay in a monogamous relationship and their friends oh. say like, that monogamy is really not working out for you. It's so good that you're finally seeing that that's just ridiculous that you tried to make that work out for you. No one does that, but that's exactly what happens when people have relationships that don't last forever. They may not even end badly. They just don't last forever. And like, "Mm, that's because you tried that consensual non-monogamy. What a fool you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that was, I was really quick to just say, no, I mean, I am fine to talk about some of the difficult pieces or the pieces that were hard to overcome or never, never got overcame, you know, and it still was and still is maybe, um, a pain point, um, for any of us, but I think the more it's talked about, 
<laughs> the healthier um, all of us can and decide, is that something you do want to explore? Ask more questions. Um, it's not this wonderful grass is greener over here mm-hmm. at all. Um, but if that's something that you're considering for yourself, if you're getting pulled into that direction, there are ways, there are people, there are professionals out there to help you. Mm -hmm. Um, so what are some of the different dynamics that you see? Um, some of maybe the, the different ways that you see people practicing consensual non-monogamy, because there are so many, so maybe kind of give us a few Yeah. I oftentimes have clients that identify as lifestyle or swingers or, um, you know, they have sexual partners. They may not identify as swingers, but they don't have romantic relationships. And for some people that works great for a long time and they are able to have this really sex positive lifestyle while having essentially a monogamous or monogamish primary relationship. But oftentimes through that process at some point, and it may be years, uh, someone that someone's having sex with is more than just sex. And so that's often a lot of what I'm helping to is what does that mean? Well, you don't necessarily have to decide you're polyamorous, but what does that mean if suddenly you have someone you're not just having sex with sometimes, but they really are more of a partner. And how do you shift the concept of what your relationship is then if there's someone who is having a more, elevated status in your heart. Um, and that can be really tough because oftentimes in that swinger or lifestyle, there's still very much as the monogamous paradigm. So it almost feels like, Oh, um, you're cheating then. Cause this wasn't our original agreement, but we can't choose when we're having sex with someone that I actually care about you in these other ways. So I'd be lying to myself if I didn't start to explore that. Now that doesn't mean just because you have deeper feelings for someone that you have to have, um, a deeply committed or long-term relationship with them, but it, you have to be honest about that, at least with your partner and to be able to start to talk about that in a real way. Um, so that's one of the common pieces that I see. Uh, a lot of times I have clients who have been monogamous for a long time. They love their partner, but they got married when they were young, oftentimes in a religious context. And then they've grown away from religion. They've grown away from heteronormativity. They feel like they missed out on those earlier experiences of exploring sex. Um, sometimes they identify or have come to identify as bisexual or pansexual, and they never got to explore that because they ended up with, um, a a partner that's opposite gendered from them. So it's really important for them to be able to explore that. And um, that can be sometimes off balance in a partnership when there's one person who feels like I haven't gotten to explore my sexual self, or I haven't gotten to explore this aspect of my sexuality. And the other partner is kind of like, I'm not really focused on sex right now. I'm focused on my career. I'm focused on kids. So this is going to feel off balance if you're exploring and I'm not. And so I help them figure out what's going to make the most sense for them in moving forward in that way, um, together or separately in terms of having other partners. Um, oftentimes I have clients that are in consensually non-monogamous relationships, polyamorous relationships that are very committed. Uh, they may have been committed in, you know, a throuple like you were exploring or four people living together, two couples that have raised kids together. And at some point, uh, there's been a shift in the dynamic for 
one person has really dropped out of the whole relationship. So it shifted the whole balance or there's another partner that's come in and shifted the balance that was there for so long. And so they need someone who's going to help skillfully guide them through what's, what's the next stage and how you're all thinking about each other as partners. So when you see your clients, do you see everyone part of that? Do you kind of like, here, we're going to do a rotating. (laughs) I don't really even know what therapy looks like for those different dynamics. It can, it can really depend. Uh, if it's three people at some point, I definitely want to have all three people in the room, even if it's primarily therapy for two of those people, because it's something that's really going on in their relationship. At some point, I want to be able to make sure we're looping in that third person. So I really know them as a person. And if it is an issue that's really involving all three of them, then I want to see all three of them as much as possible. Um, but I have, I also really value coordinating care with other therapists specialize in this because sometimes I'll be seeing one couple and one member of that couple is also in couples therapy with their other partner. And so I want to make sure that that person's not getting too triangulated um, and that me and that other therapist aren't working at cross purposes that we're in alignment with what we're doing. Cause otherwise I might be saying one thing's really important to one couple and he's going to therapy with his other partner and that therapist is directing them in almost an oppositional way. And so it can really perpetuate the problems that might already be there. And sometimes we'll even do a session where there's two therapists and then all three people are there and we're all navigating. So it can get pretty complex. Um, and I'm really very flexible with what it might look like. Uh, but with always keeping in mind, trying not to have it be a power imbalance where one person or more than one person is really being cut out of the conversation. And that's not fair. Yeah. I mean, I'm my own experience. I can see it's an easy pitfall, especially when it's been a long-term relationship. We live together. We sleep together every night, how quick this conversation is. And then this other person is completely left out, Mm -hmm. um, or expected to just follow along Mm because there's no other choice. So it really is a constant, where are we at? (laughs) What's going on? Um, one thing that's interesting as a non-monogamous therapist is, uh, therapists have a really strong policy on not having dual relationships, meaning like, I'm not going to see a husband for individual therapy and also see the wife for individual therapy. Right. Or I'm not going to see one person for individual and then also see them for couple therapy, but with consensual non-monogamy, it can get confusing because I might be seeing a couple and seeing an individual who have no relation to each other, but it's a pretty small insular community. And suddenly they're all involved. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> and I can't be the one to tell them that. But at some point, one of them will come in and be like, we're all seeing you aren't we? I'm like, yes, you're all seeing me (laughs) in separate contexts. And that can be, um, you know, it just points to the interesting intricacies of how people can be involved with one another within that CNM kind of context. That's so cool. And it's really funny that that happens. Um, kind of on like the other shift of, you know, you're talking about all your clients that you see, you also educate other therapists on, on consensual non-monogamy and all these things, what is the typical receiving of that information or um, even misconceptions that you kind of hear in that community? I think the biggest piece is when I have therapists who say, do I really need to, to do this training? Because I'm totally cool with consensual non-monogamy, right? Or I have some clients that are consensually non-monogamous. And so they're really hesitant to even sign up. They're like, 
I read this one book and I'm good. Right. And then they come and they're like, oh, I didn't think about all these different pieces that are so specific to this kind of a paradigm. And so they tend to be really grateful to have that that lens. And um, I hope more people are offering these kinds of trainings and I hope more people are going to them because it. I know that you know, most therapists, if not all therapists don't want to be doing damage and they're not judgmental people, but they can be doing damage if they don't really understand the intricacies of this kind of a world. All the tiny little, all the little things that you couldn't think of. And it's, it's unbelievable. And I think that's what made maybe my experience so positive because all the things that I didn't know were there or, you know, could change my awareness. Um, you know, interesting awakening. I don't know if that's even the right word I want to use, but it's, it was, um, yeah, a very interesting experience. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It. Um, what a great growth opportunity I should say, but, um, is there anything that's coming up for you that you would still like to share to our audience? Um, well, I will plug one thing and it's not my thing, but it's something that I really love. And I, I work in attachment theory. I feel that that's really helpful with clients in terms of understanding how our early relationships shape, how we, um, respond under stress when those jealousies and insecurities, for example, come up and up until relatively recently, most of the resources out there, and there are a lot of resources, but they were mostly pretty heteronormative and mononormative Mm -hmm. resources. So very very much on the couple bubble and on focusing on that relationship and hard to make it translate to queer relationships, non-monogamous relationships. And last year, Jessica Fern, who's also a Colorado-based therapist, wrote a book called Polysecure. It came out in October and I just can't get enough of it. I recommend it to everyone, to my clients, to other therapists. It gives such a wonderful overview of attachment theory and then how to apply that to really any relationship. So even if you're not consensually non-monogamous. I I think it's the best book out there for understanding attachment, but definitely if you're exploring an open relationship of some kind, she dives deeply into talking about how it it is a paradigm shift and what that means and how you can frame that for yourself. So again, that book's called Polysecure and it's awesome. Polysecure. Mm -hmm. Jessica Fern. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Sorry. I need to repeat it for myself, yeah. <laughs> even though I can just play the recording again. Um, thank you so much for your time. Really. I could probably chat all night with you about the, all of this and just kind of, um, having that safe place for other people to understand and explore. And even if it's not something you're interested in, maybe that you start seeing it and uh, having other people model it and that you can be accepting and, um, supportive of that. So it isn't so, um, scary, shameful, or unknown for, for everyone. So thank you so much, everyone for listening again. Um, we have new episodes coming out every other Monday. You can email us at salty at gmail.com. Find us on social media. Um, We have our Patreon that if you would like to support us financially or just get exclusive content, that is at patreon.com forward slash salty sex cast. Again, thanks everyone for tuning in and I'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the salty sex cast. Ready for round two? Find us on Facebook.